haven't you found that? Please pray with me, Father in heaven. We come now to your word, and I pray that the mystery of the work of Christ would be known to us, the great outpouring of your love for us through him, his love for you in this. And Father, that we would know it. Though the words are familiar, though the scene is known, I pray that you bring it fresh to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 15 and verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, again. And again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you're the you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others. They said, why can't he save himself? Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, as we come to this latter part of the Gospel of Mark, I trust we're treading on the familiar. I trust we're treading on that which you, which you think first and most when you think about Christianity. For Christianity is Christ, and, and the guts of it is the cross. We should never disassociate, obviously, Christianity from Christ because it's Christ who died. No one else could have done what he did. And yet we must also not separate Christianity from the cross. It's central. It's the crux of the matter. And so we think of these times in the Gospels as each portrays for us, each gives to us this crucifixion of Jesus. No one Gospel, of course, is exhaustive. Uh, Jesus was nailed to the cross and put up, if you will. At about nine o'clock in the morning, he died a little after three. Some 
time period of about six, six hours or so. And yet, if we put all the gospel records together, we'd have less than a couple of pages. And so we know a great deal may have taken place that we don't have, but we have all that we need. And each gospel writer gives the account that seems most pertinent to them, the points of that time, which make their particular case of good news. And so Mark does that for us. But what I want us to see today is this cry of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what I want to do today is ask what that meant, and then ask what it means. Not that they're two different things, but it meant something on that particular day as Jesus made that cry. And because it meant what it meant on that day, the question then is put, what does it mean now? What what, what did that accomplish? What happened at that moment that has meaning now in in my life today? In theology proper, this cry of Jesus is referred to as the cry of dereliction. And when you think of that word dereliction, it may be that a definition doesn't come quickly to mind. But you hear in it this word derelict. And we know if someone is derelict in their duty, that means they've abandoned it, that they've forsaken it, that they're not doing it, they're acting as if that duty over there doesn't exist at all, and so we say they're derelict in their duty. On this particular day, Jesus was obviously not derelict in his duty. That can't be the meaning of it because he was doing his duty at that particular moment in time. But the cry of dereliction refers to the fact that he himself is being abandoned. It's as if his heavenly father is taking his eyes off him, separating himself from him, abandoning Jesus to this cross. When you think of a derelict piece of property, you think of a property that's been abandoned by its landowner. It's derelict. It's It's there, but the landowner is saying, I'm not responsible for that. That isn't really my piece of property. I really don't care, if you will, what happens to it. If it it becomes destroyed, well, it's destroyed. If somebody else takes it over, somebody else takes it over. But it's really not my property, and it's a derelict piece of property. And we see on this particular day this cry of dereliction, Jesus having this feeling that his father has abandoned him as an owner would a piece of property and said, no, no, that's really not mine. I'm really not taking care of that. Whatever happens to it, happens to it, but I'm really not coming to its aid at this point in time. And of course, we can't think of the word derelict without the derogatory notion of thinking of a person who might be described as a derelict. And that's a person who's been, who's completely outside the society, completely outside the community. One who would look upon the community and say, I've been abandoned by this. I don't fit here. I don't belong here. I'm not really here. In fact, this one who is a derelict is uh, often despised by the community. And so this cry of dereliction is this cry from the heart of Jesus as he sees himself, as he understands himself as a derelict in his father's household. An outcast, abandoned, separated on the outside of all of that. And there Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you separated yourself from me? Why am I on the outside now? And of course, as we come to this passage, like all of these, 
we come with a great deal of reverence and humility. Reverence because it seems irreverent to analyze this one whom we so love at this moment of deepest agony. But ponder it we must because it's here. And certainly humility because there's a great deal of mystery in this. How is it that God the Father can abandon God the Son? How is it that there can be any kind of separation between the two of this? How can that really happen? What's the mechanics of that? And of course the mystery there is we don't know. We simply know that when Jesus cries out, it isn't only a feeling that he has, but he's describing a reality that's true. I mean, sometimes we have feelings that aren't descriptive of reality. Sometimes you feel unloved by someone, but that's your problem, not theirs. They really love you. You just feel unloved at the moment. And, and your feeling is real to you, but it's, it's not real in the overall context. It's not accurate. It's not right. It's just your feeling. But in this case, it's not only a feeling that Jesus is experiencing. It's not only something that's going on real in his life, but it's going on in reality, in the reality of all that's happening there. He is being forsaken at that, that moment in time by his Father. And even in the mystery of that, we mustn't let the mystery keep us from, from the meaning. Because frankly, by this point in time in the life of Jesus, we've already jumped through a lot of mystery, such as the virgin birth. Explain the mechanics of that. A man who can raise others from the dead. Explain the mechanics of that. A man who can forgive the sins of others. Explain the mechanics of that. There's great mystery in the life of Jesus. This is just another. And shouldn't we expect tremendous mystery when we're pondering the depths of God, when we're thinking about God? Why should it surprise us that there's things for which we have no explanation? We can only take the declaration of it and explore the meaning of it. Well, why is it that we get so confounded when we can't figure it out, when we're dealing with God? Who do we think we are? That's the humility of coming to God and listening and hearing and receiving the declaration of the truth and asking not so much how, but what? And what does this mean now? Well, that particular moment in the life of Jesus, what did this moment of forsakenness mean then, at that moment, at that moment in time? Well, it's interesting that, that darkness came over the land. Again, we don't know how broad that darkness is, whether it's the whole earth, that particular hill, just in Jerusalem. Really, the point isn't, that's not an important point. What's important is, is there's this sense of great darkness. And it's interesting that Jesus was nailed to this cross about 9 o'clock in the morning, and from 9 till noon, there's some recorded sayings of Jesus. For instance, he looked at the crowd and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He had a conversation with the thieves that were hung on his right and on his left, and one came to faith in Christ, and Jesus was able to say, therefore, to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in a tender moment from the cross, he looked at Mary. He looked at his mother. And he looked at the apostle John. And he said to her, woman, behold your son, meaning John. And he looked at John, and he said, Behold 
your mother. Thus, even in those difficult moments, he was still caring to forgive, to save, and even in the particularity of his own mom. And then it became dark. And we don't have any recorded sayings of Jesus from about noon until three with the darkness. It was as dark as it was silent. And some have said of this darkness, for instance, uh, Thomas Manton, an old dead guy, puts it rather romantically. He said, the sun seemed to be struck blind with astonishment and the frame of nature to put itself into funeral garb and habit as if the creatures dust not show their glory while Christ was suffering. Spurgeon put it more succinctly. He said it was midday. I'm sorry, it was midnight at midday. And then another has said this. When Jesus was born, a brilliant burst of light bathed the fields around Bethlehem. But at his death, there was no light, only the deepest darkness. It was light at midnight at the birth of Christ. It was dark at noon the death of Christ. And why this darkness? What really did it, did it mean? Well, darkness in the scripture often, almost generally stands for judgment, stands for the wrath of God being poured out in a particular way. For, for instance, and you can turn to this if you can find it before me, in Amos, in chapter 8, <clears throat> In speaking of judgment, the prophet says this, In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads and so forth. But he says judgment is associated even to the point of darkness at noon. The prophet Zephaniah writes this of, Judgment, He says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom. Darkness, always. The judgment, uh, the very wrath of God. Jesus even used this expression as he spoke of judgment and as he spoke of, of the wrath of God as well. For instance, in Matthew, in chapter 24, and verse 29, Jesus, speaking of his coming, says this, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Darkness, judgment, darkness, wrath. Always that relationship. And thus, in this very moment in time, as Jesus is experiencing this death, at noon, darkness comes at the end of which Jesus gives his commentary on what has just taken place, and he says of the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our brother Calvin puts it like this. He says, Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of scripture which actually described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you see, it was at that moment in time that 
Jesus experienced on our behalf forsakenness, separation from his Father, hell, darkness covered the earth. And Jesus experienced that on our behalf. Jesus himself referred to this judgment as darkness, for instance, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12 in one of his discussions of hell, he writes, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness, the experience of, of judgment. Darkness, the experience of the wrath of God. And of course, why? You know, why is all of this taking place? Well, on the one hand, we realize that it's taking place Again, and these are familiar things for us, but, we've, but, but it's here for us, so we, we can't ignore it. We, we have to think through it again. Again, one of the reasons I preach the way that I do that is taking these passages of Scripture and working through them is so that our minds wrap around as often as God does for us about these concepts, these ideas. And so if you think I talk about the holiness of God, if you think I talk about our own sin a lot, it's because it keeps coming up in the Bible. I don't just thumb through and look for these particular passages. They just keep coming up. And what that tells me is for us, myself most certainly included, is that we need to continually think upon these things. In fact, perhaps, he's telling us that if he doesn't cause us to, if he doesn't put our noses to it, we won't. And therefore, we'll forget these things. And if we forget about the holiness of God and we forget about our own innate sinfulness, then do you know what happens sooner or later, sooner rather than later, is that we begin to promote ourselves into the place of God because we forget. And so now you see, in this moment in time, as we do Jesus on the cross between noon and three, most especially in the midst of that darkness, we have to see at that moment the tremendous and the great holiness of God, to where even God cannot look, as the prophet Malachi said, his eyes are too pure to look upon sin, and so it darkens. It isn't so much, as Thomas Manton said, that the creatures and the flowers and all of that can't look upon Christ as he suffers. It's, if we could put it like this, the Father must indeed cover his eyes, turn his back on this sin. And thus in those moments, you see, Jesus, because of the holiness of God, is forsaken by his Father. Because in God's holiness, he can't look upon sin. And at that moment, Jesus is taking upon himself the sin of sinners. The scripture says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. One author puts it like this. He says, at this time, wave after wave of the world's sin was poured, poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed as all the lies of civilization, all the murders of a thousand killing fields, the whoring of the world's armies, and the noxious brew of hatreds, jealousies, pride were poured out on his purity. He became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone 
who hung on a tree. In the darkness, Jesus bore it all in silence. Not a word came from his, came from his lips. And, and that's nice. That's right. But it's more personal than that. Because at that moment in time, if you're a believer in Christ, if you come to know him, the truth of what happened was that all of your lives and all of mine were placed upon him. That all your jealousies and all of mine were placed upon him. That all your slanderous words and impure thoughts and ugly motives and sexual immorality and, and, and spiteful words and harmful thoughts and judgmental attitudes and everything about us and our sin was placed on him at that moment in time. And while you may think you look good to God, in our sin, he must darken because he can't look upon us. And he must judge because he is holy. And you might say, I don't like to look at that. And I would stand right there with you. These are hard glimpses at Jesus. It's why I say we, we look as if we're looking through our fingers because a full-blown look might be too much for us to, to see, but yet we must, because you see, he's doing this on our behalf. This is what we deserve. We in him at that moment. That's what cut Luther, and I've told this story many times, you know, as Martin Luther was coming to faith, as he was coming to grips with the truth about what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to follow Christ, what it meant to receive justification, what it meant to be saved. Part of his, his pilgrimage and in that, his coming to that, was to happen upon this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he saw that coming from the lips of Jesus, and the question of Luther is the right question, and that is, how is it? that the pure, holy, perfect, sinless Son of Man would utter such an expression. Because such an expression should only be uttered by one who has sinned and is under the wrath of God. But over time, it began to dawn on Luther. It wasn't for Christ's sins. It was for mine. You remember in the garden as we looked at Jesus in that very tender moment as he cried out and poured out his heart to his father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. That cup, you remember, was the cup of God's wrath. That cup, you remember, was what Isaiah referred to as the goblet of God's wrath. It was that that Jesus dreaded. Uh, the beatings and all of that was horrible, and he faced it, and he, he faced it without defense, of course. But then when it comes to this moment of darkness, that's what his soul feared. That's what he couldn't get his, his, his arms around in that night in the garden. That's what, as a, as a man facing the judgment of God on our behalf, acted like a man facing the judgment of God. I don't want to do that. If there's anything that can, that, that can, that, that can be... Uh, cause this to be removed from me, please. And of course, when you and I say, oh, let this cup pass, the Father says, all right. You needn't drink it because it's been drunk for you. 
my friend Jerry Bridges in a book that you need to read. He wouldn't promote this as shamelessly as I will. A book called The Gospel for Real Life. You need to get that book because and read it and give it to all your friends because it is the gospel. You'll read that book and you'll say, yes, this is the gospel. And then you'll read your Bible and you'll say, this is the gospel because Jerry explains the gospel using all the biblical metaphors, all the biblical images, all the biblical events. It's just a wonderful book to have. And anytime you're sharing the gospel with someone, if you ever feel like you've been inadequate and you haven't given them the whole scoop or haven't had time or you've met somebody on an airplane and you're thinking, I need to share with them the gospel, get their address, send them this book, and if they read it, at least their eyes would come upon the gospel, whether their heart embraces it is the work of God. But Jerry, in one of these chapters, speaks of this cup. And what he does is he says, the way he puts it is this, that at that moment in time, the wrath of God in Christ was exhausted, that it was completely drunk, that all the, there's nothing left of the wrath of God for those who trust in Christ. Now, I know for most of us that's old news, but it should never get old in our hearts because that really is the very essence of of us, because that's what it meant on that day. On that particular day, what it meant was that Jesus was exhausting the wrath of God for us. So then, at the end of that, he says, I've been forsaken on behalf of those who will trust in me, on behalf of those who are now in me. And then he cries his last. It's finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. That's what it meant on that particular day. What does it mean? Go on down the page in Mark chapter 15, and we'll get another hint of that. Verse 38 says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, don't let that pass. That's fairly significant. Because, you see, the curtain to which it refers most likely is the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now, if you can think about the old tabernacle or the temple, you find there are a number of courts, especially in the temple on the outside and so forth and so on. But on the inner part, toward the middle back, was this bigger, was this room that was divided into two. And on the outer part of this bigger room was the holy place. And then there was a veil. There was a huge curtain. And on the inside was the most holy place, or what you may know of as the Holy of Holies. Now, that curtain was very significant, both in a practical way and a theological way. In a practical way, it was very significant because it kept people out of the Holy of Holies, except for the one who was supposed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, and that was the High Priest. You see, if you were just wandering around the temple and happened to go into the Holy of Holies and you weren't the high priest and it wasn't the Day of Atonement and you hadn't done everything that was necessary in order to get you into the Holy of Holies, you would die. So that curtain was very practical. You couldn't look upon what was in the Holy of Holies because it, what was in the Holy of Holies was to be the Ark of the Covenant, the top of which would be the mercy seat or what was called the seat of propitiation or the seat of atonement. And you would know, I think, on the day of, uh, on the day of atonement, 
In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the high priest would take a couple of goats, a couple of animals, but before he would do that, he would kill an animal on his own behalf. And he, on his own behalf, would bathe, put on new clothes, go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the seat of propitiation, to symbolize the fact that God is holy and we're sinful, and to be in his presence, there must be the shedding of blood. To be in his presence, we must be cleansed from our sin. To be in his presence, our sin must be dealt with. And so, in symbol form, the blood was sprinkled, if you will, on this mercy seat, so that the high priest could then make atonement for the people with the other animals. Now, it's interesting that on the day that Jesus was crucified, in fact, at that very hour, that this curtain splits in the temple from the top down, not from the bottom up. See, if I were going to split the curtain, I probably would have to do it from the bottom up. I mean, from, yeah, yeah, from the bottom up. I have to grab where a guy my size can grab. See, it wouldn't, I couldn't do top down. Too big. You have to be on top of it to do top down. Well, God's not into tops and bottoms. And so when he's going to split a curtain, he tears it from his side, from the top down. And all of a sudden, at that moment in time, the Holy of Holies is exposed. Because you see, what Jesus did meant that he was exhausting the wrath of God once and for all. And what that meant, therefore, I'm sorry, what that means, therefore, for us is that the very throne of God is exposed to all those who come in Christ. It's open. We don't need a priest. We don't need a lamb. Because we have a priest who was our sacrifice. And he did it all. And so the author of Hebrews then, in thinking about this curtain being split, writes this, for instance, in Hebrews in, in chapter 4, and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. The shout of the curtain opening was, come in. The shout was, you have access to me, to the very throne of grace. Come with boldness, not in yourself, because if you come in yourself, you missed three o'clock. You missed what happened. So come in Christ. And so when you come in Christ, you see, you can come boldly. Why? Because he's worth it all. You know, he only had to do it once, not every year. Because he's worth it all. Just now come in him. Then in chapter 6, in verse 19 of Hebrews, we read this. We have this hope. That is the hope of salvation. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, that is our hope, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. It's an anchor for our soul, this hope. Well, why is this hope an anchor? You know what an anchor does. It keeps you from drifting. And an anchor only works if it's secured on two ends. <laughs> if you've got a boat, the boat's got to be secured. And if you've got an anchor, 
the anchor's got to be secured to the rope. Because if not, then you just drift. And he says, this hope is our anchor. And the reason it could be an anchor to keep us from drifting is because it's sure. It's, it's not 80%, 90%. It's 100% certain. And the reason is because it's gone behind the curtain. Because the curtain has been opened. And we enter in Jesus who went on our behalf. Right into the presence of God. So rather than being forsaken, rather than being separated, we're in the very presence of God. Chapter 9, verse verse 11. When Christ came as high priest, of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonial and unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Verse 23. It's necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as one man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ did it once for all. We have access to him. Don't miss it. Don't forget it. That's what 12 to 3 meant. That's what 12 to 3 means. Finally, this. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Isn't that remarkable? You see, people in America think that just because they're Americans, just because they're human, just because they think they can pray, they have the right to enter into the very presence of God. How foolish. How arrogant. How irreverent. And it isn't arrogant of us to say, oh no, you can't do that, you have to do it our way. Because it isn't our way. For us to go we have to admit with them that we have no right to be in the presence of God on the basis of our own standing, that there is one who must go before us. But since he has, and since he exhausted the wrath of God, then we can enter into the most holy place, the very heart of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living sacrifice, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the commandment. Not a suggestion. It's not simply an opportunity. It's a commandment. Let us draw near to God. And what he says to us is this. You needn't be forsaken. 
You needn't be separated. Come on, draw near, but you must come in Christ. Now, when we celebrate communion, <clears throat> we say that the sacraments, communion and baptism, are signs and seals of God's covenant of grace. Now, that's more than just Presbyterian speak. Because what that is telling us is that as a sign, it points us to the truth of God's promise to save all those who trust in Christ. But it's more than just a sign, it's a seal. And by that, we mean this, that if you want to know if a promise is authentic, then you must see who made the promise. And then you must be certain that that person really made that promise. For instance, if you got a letter in the mail and it made a promise to you, you'd want to see the signature. But then you'd want to make sure that was an authentic signature. But if that person had his own seal to emboss in the paper, and if that seal was there, you could say, ah, yes, I can trust this promise. This is one of God's seals. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sign my name on this promise at this table. And when you experience this, when you come here, what this will do for you if you come in faith is it will affirm that faith. It'll build that faith. It'll strengthen that faith. After leaving this table, if you come in faith, your faith will be stronger because this is my way, one of my ways. This is my way of sealing that, of saying, this promise is from God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, watch my body between noon and three. You won't be able to see it because it'll be dark. And you'll say, why the darkness? And then he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he took that cup, which was known as the cup of blessing, because only God can turn the cup of wrath into the cup of blessing. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Between noon and three, it'll be dark, but my blood will be shed, and I'll be exhausting the wrath of God on your behalf so that you'll know this promise is sure. Your hope will go behind the curtain because I'm there on your behalf and you'll be able to enter into the holy place. This is true. It's real. So he says, draw near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even now as we look upon this table, we're wondering, how's this going to increase my faith? But then we think of Christ, the amazing work, the tremendous love poured out, not as a victim, but as one who gave his life. And so, Father, we pray that you would take this bread and this juice set it apart for your own use 
And you've told us your use, that we might think upon Christ. And as we think upon Christ, that we may become more secure, our hope, having gone behind the curtain in our Lord Jesus Christ, will be made in our own hearts more certain. So, Father, I pray that you would increase our faith, give us great assurance that we might, regardless of the sins we've committed, that we might draw near to you through Christ Jesus. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He calls to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. That he calls all those who believe in Jesus Christ, that Christ exhausted the wrath of God on the cross so that we may now have access to God. He calls you to come. And all those who desire, therefore, to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Some of you are certain of your faith and will come with great joy. Some of you are struggling in your faith. You've believed, and yet still there's this struggle for assurance. If your faith bids you, please come, that your faith would be strengthened. There are those of you who know you're not believers. Don't come. And I say that not as a disinvitation, but simply as for your good. But as you're not coming, ponder the things of Christ. Pray that you might be able to draw near to him and that he would work in you. Here, in these two sections, please come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, think upon Christ, the one who was forsaken, and hear God say, your hope is firm and secure, for it's gone behind the curtain. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven. Please, I pray, grant to us and seal in our own hearts all the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. So, Father, as we come to know the great benefits in Christ, our gratefulness increases. And as our gratefulness increases, our faith grows. As our faith grows, Father, our worship becomes more pure and sweet. And as our worship becomes more pure and sweet, then you are more glorified. And as you are more glorified, there is nothing in all creation that satisfies our hearts more. And so, Father, I pray that you would work all of this in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, remind you that there will be elders available to pray. Sunday school classes coming up are Wednesday night time. So please... Bear all these in mind. The response to the benediction today will be to sing, and I trust gloriously, the great doxology. Please receive this.
and is God's benediction. Now may the God of peace. We brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and